Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Isaiah 46, so turn there. However, we are actually going to start our evening in Isaiah 45, because last week at the end of the night, we had to kind of race through the last few verses, so we didn't get a chance to contrast and compare one of the passages here. And there's a really important theological consideration to be had here. Starting at verse 23 of Isaiah 25, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, or every tongue is going to confess. Obviously, that resonates with us because we see it a couple of times in the New Testament. Let's all turn to Philippians 2, but Tom, if you would, dial up your fancy iPad to Romans 14, 11, And the rest of us are going to go to Philippians 2. What does Romans say? It says, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now when Paul says that, he says it within the context of not judging one another. And he puts the emphasis on the fact that all of us are going to stand before God, all of us are going to give account for the things that we've done in this life. And then he validates or verifies that by quoting from Isaiah, that every knee is going to bow before God and every tongue is going to confess before God. But the Philippians context is even more interesting because Paul in Philippians 2 is talking about, again, our behavior with each other, using Jesus as our standard. Because Jesus came to the planet, because he suffered and died, and he did all of that, showing a remarkable level of humility that started with reaching all the way down to becoming human, even though he was the very son of God. In that context, Paul is going to reach back to Isaiah 25, And quote, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. But he says it's a confession to Jesus. In Isaiah's text, it is a confession to God. It is a recognition that God is the one with whom we all have to do. But when Paul says it, he says it's Jesus that we're all going to bow the knee. Everyone's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what did Paul just do right there? Did he just make a one-for-one comparison between God and Christ? And since his theology is that Christ is God, one part of the Godhead, one-third of the Trinity, is Paul simply demonstrating that when Isaiah said 
that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to God, that Christ is the God who's going to be doing the judging, who's going to be sitting on that white throne. He's the one we all have to deal with, and he is, in fact, God incarnate. Here's the way Paul puts it. I'm going to start reading at chapter 2, verse 1, just because I like this chapter so much. But then we'll get to the quote from Isaiah in a moment. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude within yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clung to, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So really interesting thing that Paul does there. He takes that quote that is about God, that is about God the Father, that is about Yahweh in Isaiah's writing, and he applies it to Jesus, showing again that unity of Godhood between God the Father and God the Son. So I just wanted to point that out as a theological consideration because it is one of the internal evidences within the Bible that Jesus is in fact God. There are people who debate that and have debated it through the years. Was Jesus actually divine or was he just a, a good and a wise teacher? Was he just an itinerant Jewish rabbi who had some good things to say? Well, the Bible doesn't allow for that. What the Bible says plainly through examples like this is that Yahweh spoken of in the Old Testament is likened to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And levels of worship, levels of fear and reverence, levels of praise and glory that belong to God the Father exclusively in the Old Testament are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So the writers of the New Testament clearly saw, clearly believed, clearly had demonstrated to themselves that Jesus was in fact divine, that he was God. And therefore, everything that he says is not only going to happen because he is God incarnate, 
But everything about him, every promise that he made, is a rock-solid promise because it's based on the unchanging nature of God. James says of God that there is no variableness nor shadow of turning with God. So then we read of Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the writer of Hebrews. So all of the qualities of God that we read about in the Old Testament are qualities that Jesus shares in the New. And that gives us a great deal of confidence because our Savior is in fact God incarnate. And you see that time and time again as the New Testament compares the God of the Old Testament and then gives those qualities to Jesus. One of the leading evidences that Jesus is in fact God incarnate, God in sandals walking around the Middle East, one of the great demonstrations of that is that God in the Old Testament says that he alone is to be worshipped. No one else is supposed to be worshipped. And anybody who knows anything about God knows better than to accept worship. You see it like when Paul was on Malta and they wanted to liken him to a God and they wanted to worship him. And he said, don't do it. Even angels, when John falls down at the feet of an angel, the angel says, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant like you are. Worship God. God alone is to be worshipped. Jesus came to the planet and accepted worship. How does he get away with that? Unless he's actually God. His mindset, his recognition of who he actually was, his awareness of who he was, was that he was God and that he deserved worship and he accepted worship. So in the Old Testament, we're told, worship God and him alone. And we've been seeing that for several different chapters now as we've been going through Isaiah. Chapter after chapter after chapter in this section of Isaiah, God is saying, who's like me? There's nobody like me. Worship me and only me. And then Jesus comes along and says, and me. And the New Testament writers are fine with that because Jesus is God. Get it? Okay, so that will take us to Isaiah 46. Now, This whole section of Isaiah that we've been reading, this middle section of Isaiah, these several prophecies, these several visions from Isaiah that are all God's defense of himself, as these various prophecies have been happening, time has been going by. And as time has gone by, the very thing that Isaiah has predicted, that Judah is going to go into the Babylonian captivity, That has actually occurred by the time we get to chapter 46. And there's a couple things happening in Babylon. One is that the Babylonians think because they have defeated Jerusalem, because they have torn down the temple, because they have conquered Jerusalem and conquered Yahweh's people, well, then they think that it is their God that allowed them to do it. It's their gods that they've assigned to themselves that gave them the strength, the power, the ability to overcome these people who were the people of Yahweh. And so chapter 46 is going to start with God Yahweh denouncing the gods of Babylon, and he names the two primary Babylonian gods and says that they're bowing down, they're falling down, they're stooping over. They're powerless. They can't help themselves. They're no longer upright. And in fact, he says, in order for them to be moved, 
You have to put them on a cart and make animals, haul them around at great burden to the animals because you've made these big, heavy metal gods that you then have to carry around and you use animals to move them. And then by contrast, God is going to say, but you, Israel, I carry you. The Babylonians aren't going to be able to resist the fact that God is going to bring the Medo-Persians against them. Babylon is going to fall, just like God said. And the Israelites are going to remain in Babylon for 70 years, and then they're going to return and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and there's nothing that Nebo or Bel can do about it because they're powerless. They're empty gods. They have no ability to do anything. However, the very thing that the God of Israel says is going to happen actually does happen, actually does occur again more evidence that he is the only God who is. And the contrast, I love the contrast, because God says, in order for the Babylonians to have a God, they have to bear it up. They have to carry it. They have to take it places because it can't move. By contrast, Israel, I pick you up. I lift you up. I carry you. Babylonian men and women carry their God. The God of Israel carries his people. And that is one of the more fascinating and unique characteristics of the Bible and of biblical Christianity. Every other religion on the face of planet Earth for all of history says that if you want to appease a God, if you want to please any God, and then you want to gain the benefits that that God offers you, You have to go pursue that God. You have to chase after that God. Clean yourself up enough for that God. You have to do all the right things to satisfy that God. You have to pursue that God. And that's the way every religion on the planet for the history of earth works. You can't name any religion short of Christianity that doesn't work that way. It starts with some goal, some God, something that men and women have to pursue in order to gain whatever the benefit of that particular God and that particular religion is. But unique in the annals of human history is Christianity and biblical descriptions of God, which are that God, the real God, the only God who actually is, pursues men lifts people up, draws people to himself, calls people, redeems people, justifies people. He's the pursuer. He's the one who assigns destinies to people. And that's unlike any other religion. Thank God. Thank God is right. But you can't name another religion in the history of planet Earth where that is the kind of God they describe. Instead, they They will describe some god or some demigod or some higher form of creature that you have to go build things for and make altars to. And you have to actively pursue them and live up to them and impress them and gain favor with them. And then maybe you'll gain whatever it is that they've offered. It's nothing like Christianity. Christianity is about God pursuing sinful men because sinful men can't pursue him. 
So with all that introduction, we can start reading chapter 46, which is a short, fairly self-explanatory, now that I have over-explained it, fairly self-explanatory chapter, and we should be able to get through it reasonably quickly. All right, so let me tell you who Baal is. Uh, Baal, not to be confused with the Canaanite Baal, these are two different gods, the Babylonian gods who were unable to save Babylon that are named here is Bel, which is another name for Marduk in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 50, the first two verses say, this is the word of the Lord concerning Babylon and the land of the Chaldeans through Jeremiah the prophet, declare and proclaim among the nations, proclaim it and lift up a flag or an ensign, do not conceal it, say Babylon has been captured, Bel has been put to shame, Marduk has been shattered, her idols, Babylon's idols have been put to shame, and her images have been shattered. The history of those two particular gods is that Marduk, or Bel, was considered to be the god of the sun. And then the son of Marduk, or Bel, was Nebo. He was the god of learning and writing and astronomy. And so because those were the chief gods of Babylon, they made large statues to them to be worshipped, very much like the Ephesians had their large statues to Diana, very much like Nashville decided to build a large statue to Athena. Imagine, if you would, if you've ever been to visit Athena, imagine trying to move her and the amount of work it would take. It would take a lot of people and a lot of horsepower in order to do that. Well, Bel and Nebo were very large statues, very large images in Babylon. So this is the way that God describes them. Bel is bowed down. Nebo stoops over. He's describing them as falling down, as being incapable, as not being upright, having no strength. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. That's right. They would use cattle and oxen to drag them around. The things that you carry are burdensome. They are a load for weary beasts. So in order to get, and this is the absurdity of it from God's perspective, in order to get your God from one place to another, you have to manage to move it. And because you're not capable, because you've built too large a God for you to move, you put them on carts or you put them on platforms that are then hauled around by brute beasts. So if you have a God that has to be dragged around by a brute beast, that's not much of a God. In fact, that's why God mocks them and says they're bowed down. They're going to be shattered. They're really nothing. And they have to be hauled around by animals. Verse 2, they stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So in mocking these gods, he says that even the animals that haul them around as a burden, those gods have no ability to take the burden off the animals. 
All they can do is impose the burden of their own empty selves, their own powerless, weighty selves. And they themselves have now gone into captivity because when the Medo-Persians attack, they're going to take the gods of the Babylonians, very much like the Romans took the gods of the Greek pantheon and the Greek mythology and just gave them Roman names. And then that became Roman mythology. And Greek mythology and Roman mythology is very, very similar, only the names have been changed to protect the innocent, apparently. Well, the same thing happens here. The Medo-Persians are going to take the gods of the Babylonians, and then those completely powerless gods are going to end up being prisoners of somebody else. What kind of god is that? Verse 3, here's the contrast. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Unlike the Babylonians having to carry their gods, the God of Israel says, I carried you from the womb, from the day you were born, I have borne you. I have protected you. I have guided you. I have led you. I have taken care of you and provided for you. I have borne the weight of you the same way the Babylonians have borne the weight of their gods. You've been born by me from birth, and you have been carried from the womb, and even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even in your graying years, I shall bear you. So from the womb to the tomb, from coming from the womb and being born all the way to your last breath, God says, I carried you. I carried you the whole way. I provided for you the whole way. I was your God the entire time, but I didn't ask you to carry me. I carried you. Again, that's completely unique in the annals of human history and human religion. A God who pursues men and then says, I carried you. I provided for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Everything you have, everything you know, every breath you take, I'm the one who provided all of that for you. And I like at the beginning of verse 4 the contrast between even when you get old and gray, God says, I don't change. I'm the same. God doesn't age, which is why the Bible calls him the ancient of days, because he just racks up days and days and days and days and never changes. Even in your old age, I shall be the same. And even in your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you. I did do it in the past. I have done it. And I'm going to do it, and I shall. I have done it, I shall do it, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. Okay, there again is the promise. Even though they're in the Babylonian captivity at this point, here's the promise that the gods of Babylon are going to fall, that God has not given up on his people Israel, that he is continuing to bear them up and ultimately that he's going to deliver them the same way that he delivered them out of Egypt and brought them to the land of milk and honey. He says here, even though you are in Babylon, 
don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their gods. Don't be afraid of their power because I'm going to smash their power. They're going to go into captivity themselves to the Medo-Persians. And as we saw last week and the week before, God said, and I'm going to take different people and give them as a satisfactory price for you. I'm going to use them as the redemption price for you. So he gives other people groups in exchange for the Israelites. Now that is a remarkably sovereign God. A God who can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. A God who can do whatever he wants with any people group on the planet. And he can prefer Israel and deliver Israel and then say, and I'm going to take other people and give them to the Medo-Persians to be the servants to the Medo-Persians in exchange for you because I'm going to cause Cyrus, who we named by name last week, I'm going to cause Cyrus to give you back to me. It's remarkably sovereign language. Not only is he going to deliver Israel from the Babylonians, but he's also, in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week in chapter 47, he's then going to judge the Babylonians for the fact that they took the Israelites captive, even though it's God who used the Babylonians to take the Israelites captive. He's then going to judge the Babylonians for taking the Israelites captive. That's a God who can do whatever he wants to do. So knowing all that, having laid all that out, having said what he has done, having said what he's going to do, having laid out the past and the reason for the past, having laid out the future and what's going to happen in the future, he again returns to the same question that we've been seeing for weeks and weeks now. Verse 5, to whom will you liken me? To whom will you make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith. And he makes that silver and that gold into a god. And then they bow down indeed and they worship it. It's as absurd as the idea that we saw a couple weeks ago that you go out into the forest, you chop down a tree, part of it you use for cooking your food, and part of it you make into a god. And then you worship the very thing that you're also burning. Uh, how foolish is that? He says, now you take your silver and gold, which a moment ago was in a bag, which a moment ago was just silver and gold, and then you take it to a goldsmith, and he smelts it, and he makes it look like some kind of creature, any kind of image, and then you bow yourself down and worship it, and what changed about it? A moment ago, it was just gold and silver, and you didn't bow down to it. And then you made it into a god and decided to worship it. It had no more ability when it was in your bag than it has when it's made into an image. And yet you think that's what's going to deliver you? You can see why God would say, who are you going to compare me to? I'm not like any of these things you make, any of these earthly gods. I'm nothing like them. To whom would you liken me? To whom will you make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weighs silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. 
and then they bow down indeed and they worship it. Worse yet, they lift it up on their shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it just stands there. It does not move from its place. And though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Now, it's easy to read that and say, well, that was those old foolish people back then. A couple thousand years ago, 2,700 years ago, when Isaiah is writing, that's what people were like back then because they were really, really superstitious. Anybody been to a Catholic church lately? Have you seen the statues that are just standing there, that can't move, that can't answer you, that can't do anything for you, can't save you, can't redeem you, can't solve your problems for you, but people are in there lighting candles to them and venerating them and bowing down in front of them? Human beings haven't changed despite the fact that a few thousand years have gone by. Human beings are just as superstitious today as they've ever been. And if they can't worship the true and living God, they're still going to worship something. Whether it's a statue, whether it's a sports star, whether it's a pop star, they're going to worship something because that drive to worship is innate in human beings. We desire to worship something. And if we can't worship the real God, then doggone it, we'll just make something and worship it. People have always been foolish once they are separated from God. They lift it up on their shoulder and they carry it, which means basically this is a God who can't walk. He can't go anywhere on his own. If he wants to go to a different room, he needs somebody to carry him. Not much of a God. You have to lift it up on your shoulder and carry it, and then you just set it in its place and it stands there and it doesn't move from its place because it can't. How obvious is that? It does not move from its place And though one may cry to it, it cannot answer you. And it cannot deliver you from your distress. Remember this, verse 8, remember this and be assured and recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Again, here is God admitting that he knows the kind of people he's dealing with. When he's dealing with Israel, he is dealing with rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who here he calls transgressors. That's why he keeps calling them Jacob, to remind them what they're really like and who they really are. They are heel catchers. They are supplanters. And nevertheless, God doesn't turn away from them because they are his people, not by their behavior in pursuing him. They are his people because he chose them. And that doesn't change because God doesn't change. And because of the unchanging nature of God, he can keep pointing out to them, you are transgressors. You are sinners. You are corruptible human beings. And you're mine. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to send you a savior. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. Remember what I did in the past and remember how I predicted it before I did it. And remember how it is that I tell you about the past and I tell you why it happened. And I tell you what the purpose was of the things that occurred in the past. Remember those former things that are long past 
because I am Yahweh, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. And here again is the evidence that there's no one like him. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, declaring things that have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It's the same thing David writes. People ask him, where is your God? David's answer is, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. So this is the constant, consistent description of God, the sovereign who can do whatever it is he wants to do with anybody he wants to do, anywhere he wants to do it, anytime he wants to do it, as many times as he wants to do it, and nobody can talk him out of doing what he wants to do. No one can stop his hand or say, what are you doing? Instead, he is the God who from the very beginning declared what the end was going to be from the start. In other words, creation is not random. Planet Earth and human history are not just random events. We're not just a bunch of atoms and protons crashing into each other in a random fashion. There's a plan. God set about his plan. And then he told us what the plan was. And with each step along the way where the plan comes to fruition, comes to actual occurrence in human history, it's yet again evidence that God points to and says, see, I told you. I told you and I told you because I'm the only God who does that. I don't know if you've read any other religious literature. I can't necessarily advise reading the Bhagavad Gita. I have, but it is pretty confusing. I can't advocate reading the Quran. I have. But all other religious literature very carefully, very purposefully stays away from genuine prophecy. Because you can check it. And if the God of Islam or the God of the Mormons, if any other God on the planet tried to prophesy what was going to happen because they are false gods. They couldn't accurately say what the future is, which is why God holds such a high standard and says, even if a prophet on the planet says what's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that's a false prophet. Don't be afraid of him. Send him out of the camp because God has a hundred percent accuracy going. The real God, the God of Israel, the Yahweh has a hundred percent accuracy going and he keeps using it as his demonstration that he's the only God that can do that. Nobody else can pull that off. So he says, I am declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times declaring things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Now, if this particular prophecy was written before the Babylonian captivity, 
then the bird of prey from the east would have been Nebuchadnezzar, who God was calling down on Jerusalem. If, which is more likely, they were actually in the Babylonian captivity at this point, then God is saying, I'm going to bring in Cyrus, who he named in the previous chapter. I'm going to bring that bird from the east, and not only is he going to conquer Babylon and topple the gods and capture the gods of Babylon, but he's also going to let my people go so they can go back to Jerusalem, so they can rebuild the temple, so they can restore the proper worship of me. And God says, that's not random occurrences. That's me. I did it. I called that particular king at this particular moment in order to accomplish this particular thing, and I told you all about it before I did it. I called him by name, Cyrus, 150 years before he was even taking over the Middle East. I named him by name. I'm calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Now when God uses that kind of language, I planned it and surely I will do it. We have to take it out of just its historic, prophetic Isaiah context and recognize that this is the God with whom we deal. And when he says he's going to do something, He's going to do it. And that means there is a time of trouble coming, such as never was or ever would be again. Because it's predicted in Daniel, and it's predicted in Jeremiah, and called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's predicted by Jesus, and hearkens back. When he predicts it, he hearkens back to Daniel. Gives credibility to the fact that Daniel predicted it. So that time of trouble is coming. Which means that there is a time of redemption for the church coming a time of actual gathering of the church to meet the Lord in the air because that's what the Bible describes. That's what God said. And God here says, I planned it and I'm going to do it. And all the way through the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel all speak with one voice and all say that God is going to regather Israel and plant them back in their land for peace and safety that he is going to protect them, he is going to cover them, and he's going to give his son, David's greater son, to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and all the Gentile nations, the blessings that come to them, are going to come through Jerusalem and through the king on his throne, and God says, I predicted it, I planned it, I'm going to do it. We have the evidence of history where God has said, I'm going to do it, and then he's done it like the Babylonian captivity. Then we have all these other prophecies where he hasn't done it yet, but we have to remember that God said, I planned it, I'm going to do it. And because he's done all the stuff up until now, we can have every confidence that he's going to do the rest of the stuff. Otherwise, you would have to say, God changed. And this is the same God who says, now remember that. Remember the former things long past, because I'm God and there is no other. This is his evidence. This is his argument for himself, is the history of the world and his ability to declare the history of the world in advance. And then those things actually occur in time and history. And therefore, we can have confidence that the rest of what he has said he's going to do, he's actually going to do. 
So don't just read sections like this from Isaiah and think, yeah, but that was for Israel back then. It's also very important for us in our understanding of who God is and what God's like. He's the sovereign who's in charge of time and history and everyone. And he keeps pointing at that as his evidence that he is the only God who actually is. So we ought to take him at his word. We ought to believe him. We ought to take sides with him on this one and say, yeah, you are. You're the only God who truly is. You're the only God who deserves worship because you've demonstrated that you are God above and beyond all of human history. You're the one that's in charge. Listen to me, says verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. Don't you love that God would talk to his people that way because he knows who they are and what they're like? That's the same God who knows everything about Leon, who knows that Leon can be stubborn or difficult or hard-hearted, that he's Leon. He's, he's all full of all this Leon-ishness. That he's a fallen sinner, that he's a depraved sinner, and yet God can say, you're far from righteousness. I'm sorry to keep pointing you out, but it applies to everybody in the room. You're stubborn-minded, and you're far from righteousness, and so you can't pursue me. You can't chase after me. You have no ability to impress me or please me, so here's God's answer, the same God who said, I've carried you your whole life. He says, listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And I bring near my salvation. It will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion. And I will grant my glory for Israel. So very consistent theology throughout the chapter where God starts by saying you can't pursue me I'm going to pursue you you can't lift me you can't carry me you can't treat me like a burden on your shoulders and cart me around on an animal cart but I've picked you up I've lifted you I've carried you your whole life and because you're stubborn and because you're hard-hearted Because you're by nature incapable of righteousness, I'm going to bring my righteousness. And I'm going to bring my salvation. And I'm going to bring my glory because you have none of any of those. So I'm going to lift you. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to give you everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption eternally because you can't do it so I'm going to do it even though I know exactly what you're like even though I know you're a sinner even though I know you're hard-hearted and not righteous and then God points at human history and says I declared it to you before any of it happened if you check my accuracy rating you're going to see that I'm the only God who could do this, who could declare what was going to happen from the beginning. And now I'm telling you things that haven't happened yet. I'm telling you things that are still to come. That's the God, the all-powerful God, the all-sovereign God, the almighty God. That's the God who pursued you. That's the God who promised Israel greater glory 
and a glorious future. If you believe he's going to save you, you also have to say, and he's going to redeem Israel, because it's right there. Next week, we will see God declare his anger at Babylon for the way Babylon treated his people. It's very much like the way that earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 10, we read about God getting mad at Assyria for their haughtiness of heart when they attacked Israel, even though God had used them specifically and said, they're the instrument that I'm going to use to bring Israel down. They've worshipped other gods. They have pursued other relationships with other nations that I told them not to. Don't be intermarrying. Don't be bringing these foreign religions into the land. They've done all that. Therefore, I'm going to use Assyria to teach them a lesson. And then God turns around and punishes Assyria for the way they attacked Israel, even though they did exactly what God said they were going to do. God said Babylon was going to come down on Jerusalem, and then Babylon did And now God is going to hold Babylon guilty for doing that. And only if you know that God is that sovereign can you be comfortable with that. Only then can you create a theology that gets you somewhere close to the biblical God who can do whatever he wants. Any questions? My salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation. Where are we supposed to switch free will into that? Yeah, go ahead, do it. Yeah, what do you got? Yeah. So yank out a little bit of free will in the midst of that. How consistently does God say, I'm the one who provides salvation. I'm the one who determines it. I'm the one who enacts it. The only way that you could wedge free will into that is if you're not paying attention to the God of the Bible, who goes to great lengths to say, this is me, this is what I'm like. So you either have to stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible says and adjust your thinking accordingly, or you end up voiding the word of God by your traditions. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.